0: You're listening to the Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks, and at no point during this show has AI been used, or any intelligence for that matter. Hello, I'm Lee Ford,
1: and I'm a very hyperactive Andy Beacon. You are.
0: <laughs> I'm probably I'm I'm in that chilled zone. You're in the. Oh boy, I'm so hyper
1: i mean i'm already going off on tangents before we've even started and me tangents that i've already gone on to you will be able to listen to if you're a regular listener you know there's always some dump at the end of the end credit sting of the show where to put all the outtakes which one of them last week was uh while we're recording i mentioned oh to see it finally got around seeing meg too which lee reviewed about five episodes ago yeah yeah and i gave my quick comments to as like yeah, oh, you know it's okay and then we like, we said that like oh you should bring it into the reviews and talk about it there and then we completely forgot so i just put that little bit that we had earlier on in the show where like you would basically said oh yeah you should put it in there kept that on the end so you now know that <laughs> i kind of agreed with lee that the second film probably would have been a better film if you'd actually focused on the giant sharks in your giant shark movie well yes you know, maybe what one one of the other six books when they get ad- adapted will tackle it better because there's eight books, eight books in that series. I, every time I told, told people this week that um, the the Meg is adapted from books, they look at me like, "What? Someone yeah. wrote that?" <laughs> it's like, "Yeah, there's eight books in the series. What?" <laughs> it's like, "Yeah, yeah anyone could be a writer these days." <laughs> no, I'm not. I've never read the books. I'm not knocking them. <laughs>
0: oh, they're not bad. I've read the first one. Well, we uh we got together in the week, didn't we, to do q and A. Q&A. For a music documentary about the band Newtown Neurotics. Uh and we met the lead singer and basically the uh creative force behind the band. Steve Druitt. Steve Druitt, who who I've never interviewed anybody as much as as, as someone <laughs> like Steve Druitt, who you we just got the opportunity to ask one question. Mm. And then twenty minutes later we got an answer. <laughs> we got we got a chance <laughs> for a, a second question.
1: He's he's one he's a dream. For a Q&A. I mean i chatted yeah. to him before the film while i was waiting for lee and we were waiting for the film to start and i got the impression then that it was going to be one of those easy kind of q a's where you basically just have to seed an idea of a thread and that will take him off on it and literally it was we, we me and Lee, while the film was on we kind of bounced ideas of where we could go with the, the questioning with lee starting things off just asking you know where did the idea for the film come from and in answering that, he answered my next three questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like crossing off little things from my notepad. So I was like, eh, that's done, that's done, that's done. And they're just like, right, just throw out something else. We'd said before the Q&A, like before going into the Q&A, it's like, if we can get 20 minutes for a QA, and a including audience interaction, yes. that's a good Q&A. Uh, if you do anything less than 10 minutes, you've not really got a good Q&A and it's not engaged. It was an hour. We were, we were doing the Q&A for an hour, and I'm pretty sure that we could have kept talking for another yes. couple of hours because it he was he was engaging he was yes no, absolutely he was fascinating his passion for what he's done his passion for the industry his passion for like the plight that the music industry is in at the moment with the closing down of nightclubs and no venues because that was a great closing question from one of the audience there who, who was from harlow which is where they originate from And basically said, there's nothing in Harlow for live bands anymore. So, what do the new up-and-comers need to do, and what needs to be done? And it got him onto a talk about how he's working as closely as he can with the council down there to try to reinvigorate everything down there. But what needs to change is a change of which political parties are in power, in order for the changes to be made. And it basically tapped into everything that the neurotics are about. It's the politics, it's the passion, it's the industry, and. The documentary's not got really a general release it's only on a limited release there might be still be some shows in some cinemas across the uk check it out if you can whether you know who the neurotics are or not because it's not just an interesting look at the band it's a fascinating insight into a time and culture of music and what music that is and a message that is generally does. long
0: gone as well mm. uh, because we live in an age and this is one of the questions that i didn't ask uh, it was on my list, which was, where is music now when it comes to uh, uh, being political, uh, having having messages? And we, I never got around to asking that. But we had a good night. We had a, an enjoyable evening. And uh, uh, I believe it went down
1: well. Yeah, it's it's been well received. It's another little notch from the Film File. It's great to be to introduce it as well before the film with, like, yeah. I am Lee and I'm Andy and we're from the Film File, the film show for and basically put the plug in for the show it's great yeah. we like to get it there if any of you were in that audience that night and watched the q a by by all means get in touch with us yeah. get in touch with You're us free. and let us know what you thought of the film what you thought of like the q a and we'd love to hear from you and if, if that was your fi- if this is your first time listening to the show as the result of us talking about it in the q a thanks welcome to the show hello hope you enjoy what you hear one
0: thing that's going to lead into our challenge of the week something that we saw so uh if you are new every week we do a challenge of the week a a social challenge we throw out a question and we can't wait for your response so last week's challenge andy was
1: so last week we were to tie in with the new poirot movie coming out which i'm reviewing later in the show haunting in venice we asked who is your favorite on screen detective or sleuth in murder mysteries etc be it big screen or small screen, because we are aware that a lot of the adaptations people are familiar with because of TV adaptations. And if it's a character that it's been adapted so many times, who's your favourite portrayal of them? And I've struggled to come up with an answer that no one else has already suggested.
0: I'm going to throw out what mine would be, and then let's see if if we're in the same ballpark. So when I gave this some thought, I would definitely say Branagh's Poirot. Uh, I think he's a fantastic, uh, fantastic version. On the smaller screen, Columbo is my all-time favorite TV detective. Rockford Files, it's not so much a whodunit, but I always enjoyed the Rockford Files. Uh, Robert Downey Jr's take on Sherlock Holmes. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a fresh take. Uh, Sherlock Holmes as a character, I think there's been so many great Sherlock Holmes movies. The 7% Solution, Murder by Decree, uh, so many great actors. So uh, those would be my favourite uh, cinematic and, and, and televisual detectives. Oh oh, 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 Charlie Case, of course, from uh, uh Pokerface, which I, I think has been one of my series of the year.
1: Yeah, great choice. Let's go through what everyone suggested, shall we? So I asked Scott in work today, who he marked down, and he gave it some thought and rattled off a few. Uh, Val Kilmer's character in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Oh, yeah,
0: never thought of that one. Good one.
1: He asked whether or not the nice guys... Uh, can be put forward yes and I was like of course it can uh yeah. Shutter Island Leonardo DiCaprio's one
0: okay. it's kind
1: of an investigation okay I think I'll allow that one uh, he said any Sherlock Holmes because every t- yeah. every time that like you get a Sherlock Holmes brought to screen it always has its own little take on it and um, but yeah. he w- he does lean more towards the Benedict Cumberbatch modern day interpretation as like that's kind of what you want Sherlock to be uh, Morgan Freeman in seven
0: yes good choice
1: being a Batman fan, obviously, Batman is the world's greatest detective, so there's no argument there. And he then remembered that Commissioner Gordon in the films isn't commissioner yet. He's still a detective. So Detective Gordon in the Batman films. And more recently, he loves Branna as Poirot. And Benoit Blanc is a great modern day. Yep,
0: suit. I'll agree with all of those. Absolutely.
1: Stephen Young sent us a message via the Spotify I like several, including the Spielberg Young Sherlock Holmes, Robert Pattinson's The Batman, and the good old cartoon of Inspector Gadget. So <laughs> what a wide, diverse range there, Stephen. I love I love that you always throw some curveballs in. Inspector Gadget, I don't think anyone else is going to come up with. <laughs> uh, but Young Sherlock Holmes is an interesting one, because I think a lot of people, that's one of those films that not a lot of people know exists, and I think we might have to deep dive it sometime next year, because it's one that I want to revisit, because I remember yeah. loving that when it first came out. So I'll add that onto the deep dive list. I know you've been nagging me about this, Stephen, uh, but you know how this works, Stephen. You nag us for eighteen months, and then we finally do it. Over on Mastodon, pseudonymous Burr um, gave a partial answer. Elliot Gould is their favourite Philip Marlowe, and that'll be from mine
0: too. My that, that would be on my deep dive. Absolutely, I love uh, I love the long goodbye.
1: Yep, yeah. um, I mean we we briefly mentioned it a few months ago when when we were talking about the new adaptations of Marlowe that's going to be taking place, and we briefly mentioned. It's going to take a lot to live up to Elliot Gould, but hey, let's see. Yeah. Over on the ex Twitter.
0: would like it. See what we did there.
1: Halfling Sarah posted a few gifts. The first is the absolute queen and you have Murder, She Wrote. I mean, let's be honest. There's no arguments there. The character Jessica Fletcher. Yes, even though we do all suspect that she was going around killing people or hiring people to kill them just to keep her in her job. You know, Murder, She Wrote was a great bit of entertainment. Also, she posted a picture of Suchet's Poirot. Fair enough. Yeah sushi um, sushi kind of brought the the kind of jovial levity to the character that he's now fondly thought for of which even branner has brought elements of into his films also and I had to look this one up because I've not seen this show but I have heard many good things about it but she posted a gif with a character saying wipe 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 and it turns out it's a monk Adrian monk yeah I monk never got series. into
0: that well, not that I never got into it. I never watched it, but I heard good things about it.
1: It's one of those shows that's on my peripheral that I need to get around to watching because everyone who's seen it has recommended it to me. Um, Becca, who's at RVU Movies, said, So many. Ultimately, it has to be Basil Rathbone as Holmes. Margaret Rutherford as Miss Marple. Oh, good choice. Um, Joan Hickson is a close second. And Move Over, Kenneth Branagh, the one and only David Suchet as Poirot.
0: Interesting that nobody has mentioned From the original version of Murder on the Orient Express, Albert Finney, who was fantastic in that role.
1: Mm. Griftwatch said Holmes, as played by Jeremy Brett, sublime. Mm. Have to agree. Have to agree. Probably the
0: truest interpretation of of Holmes.
1: Yeah. Over on Facebook, Lee Leary, David Suchet as Poirot, and Kenneth Branagh as the cinema interpretation. Both you can't argue with. Patricia Meekin, first that came to her mind, Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock, loved him, which is a great choice. Uh, Holmes, as we've said, has been played so well in so many different interpretations by so many people, but Kumbach does really make it his own and do something special with it. Um, As a second choice, she'd go for Peter Cushing, who was a favourite of hers when she was young, but Benedict Cumbach is number one. Owen Cooper, Detective Loki from Prisoners, and also Michael Shannon in Nocturnal Animals. love the fact that he knows he's going to die, so goes to all the extremes to get the case solved before he does. Yeah, Great choice. And um, Lindsay Story. Hi, Lindsay. Hope you liked uh, the few mentions of Donnie Darko last week. Um, Benedict of Sherlock. Love that modern version. Clarice from Silent of the Lambs. Mills and Somerset from Seven. Really like Ford and Tench from Mind Hunter. Not sure if they're allowed. We'll allow it. Yeah,
0: yeah. They loved it. Great series.
1: Ace Ventura.
0: Okay. Maybe draw the line on that one.
1: Well, I, I, I just said Ace Ventura is the wild card answer. I quite like it. <laughs> and The Night Guys is a good one. And I've also said the inclusion of nice guys in that list redeems last week's Donnie Darko faux pas. So uh, you've kind of made up for it. <laughs> Which uh, we then had, did have a little bit of a jokey extreme where she did threaten that she could have said Highlander has been the worst film that she's ever seen and how much she hates it. But then she admitted that she's never seen it. But she did have me going for a second and she was almost banned from listening to this show forever. <laughs> so thanks for getting involved, Lindsay. Um, always love to hear your choices that you put forwards for our questions of the week.
0: I'm going to throw in uh, a few, not wild cards, some, one completely obvious one that nobody got. James Stewart as L.B. Jeffries in Rear Window, mm. which is a fantastic film, my favourite Hitchcock film. Uh, the Last of Sheila, have you ever seen The Last of Sheila?
1: I've not, no. It's a
0: Stephen Sondheim co thriller, very, very similar in nature to Glass Onion and anthony perkins as part of that if you ever get a chance to see it, if it ever turns up somewhere give it a go i've not seen it in years
1: i'm going to throw in a few suggestions of my own and some of these come from my growing up years first of all in the early parts of my years i was obsessed with jonathan and jennifer hart in heart to heart solving a different <laughs> case every week with max
0: you know why andy why
1: because it's murder because when they met it was murder Du, 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 du. Oh i I still got fondness for it. Um then we've we've mentioned it on the show before, David Addison and Maddie Moonlighting. Oh,
0: of course i <laughs> could I forget my old time TV hero, David Addison.
1: Absolutely brilliant. Um I stumbled this week upon the first episode of Moonlighting, which is it like being uploaded onto YouTube and I gave that a rewatch and now I want to watch the whole lot again from oh, the start. It's oh, it's so much fun. In addition, i'll throw out for the modern audiences mabel oliver and charles in only murders in the building
0: yeah i, I love, love their
1: it. sleuthing investigations as much as i love the after party it's the structure of how that's done rather than investigate investigations which uncovers the mystery only murders in the building it is their interactions that really uncovers the mystery and keeps it going and i love the three of them and then for a complete left field approach he's not investigating crimes he's not investigating deaths but this character was inspired by Sherlock Holmes. And that oh, where are you is going? House MD.
0: Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, yes, it was inspired by Sherlock Holmes. It was a, a medical take on that.
1: Yeah, the, the, the whole idea was to take the concept of Sherlock Holmes but adapt it to a medical um, a medical show. And it works a treat. And it, the investigation works in the same way that they investigate crimes in a crime show. They break into their houses to go and search for clues. Things like that. They piece together ideas. They throw theories out. It's a pure detective show. It's just done with strange diseases and bizarre conditions.
0: I know one that we've we've not mentioned, and and I know that you and I both love this movie way before Ryan Johnson came up with uh, Benoit Blanc. He came up with Brendan Fry in Brick. Mm. He did indeed. There's a film that's worth revisiting.
1: Yes, I think we should add that onto the list for next year. Uh, I keep saying for next year because I have planned out already and I've run through with Lee (laughs) the plans for the deep dives right up until the end of the year. And we've got a treat of horror ones next month. And then we've got a treat of Christmas festive ones again for this December period. So uh, hopefully we'll tap into films that you love out there.
0: So I said to, to lead into this, that andy and i had met up during the week and we were inspired for this week's question by seeing (laughs) the worst (laughs) movie poster i think we've ever seen
1: i mean i have seen worse i have seen absolutely terrible attempts at photoshop on a movie poster but and i'm going to say what film it is and it's big fat greek wedding threes poster is an abomination there is terrible airbrushing going on in it. And there's a composite image photoshopped of different characters with limbs that look really twisted and deformed <laughs> and shrunken or giant. There's a guy with a suitcase embedded into his chest. It's utterly hideous.
0: There's a woman wearing a fright <laughs> fright mask.
1: <laughs> it's, it's one oh, it 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 gets so many things wrong with movie poster design all in one go. So that inspired us after we had a little rant about bad posters to come up with this week's question.
0: So this week's question is, what is, uh, we'll, we'll change it slightly, what is the best movie poster of all time? And what is the worst Photoshopped monstrosity or misrepresenting movie poster of all time?
1: I have got a bugbear on movie poster design, which I'll bring in as part of my answer next week. I don't want to say it now, just in case it just inspires other people to go for exactly the same things. But if no one else comes up with it next week, I'll be explaining one of my biggest teeth gritting moments when I look at movie posters.
0: And I'll explain to you one of my favorite movie posters, which adorned my wall as a kid. And I would have again, I'd have it in my house framed. So that's the challenge for this week. Andy, how do people get in touch?
1: Uh, you can contact us through social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, Threads. I've just set up an account on Tribal that I'm going to start using want to completely set that up as well, um, because I know a few people have migrated to there. We are still waiting for that invite to Blue Sky. So by all means, if you've got an invite out there and you want to find it our way, do so. And you can keep in touch with us through there or you can get in touch with us directly through email anyway. Podcast at filmfile.uk, or if you're listening on Spotify, which we do recommend people listen to us on Spotify, because in that, in the show description, your question of the week is in there for you to answer.
0: So that's our challenge. What have we got on this week's show? We have a deep dive into Charlie Kaufman's adaptation. We've got reviews of.
1: We've got a bit of a chilling triple bill this week because Ooh. I've seen the brand new film Haunting in Venice i've seen the film that's not out in the uk yet but is available to rent or purchase in the us last voyage of the demeter something that we both had our eyes on pretty much since it went into development and also the recent horror film from a24 and altitude films talk to me find out how scared and frightened i got later in the show
0: (laughs) we've got gossip we've got banter we've got the box office and we've got news but let's start with this week's box office
1: So over in the us this weekend the nun 2 managed to take the top spot taking 14.5 million narrowly behind it in second place is a haunting in venice with 14.3 million a reasonably decent opening weekend for the quite low budget film the equalizer 3 is in third place taking 7.2 million this weekend big fat greek wedding 3 dropping off significantly 4.8 million this weekend and barbie Scrapes another 3.8 million, still refusing to leave that top five slot. Here in the UK, Haunting in Venice is the more popular film, taking 2.1 million. The Nun 2 is 1.1 million added onto its total for its second weekend. The Equalizer 3 is in third place, taking another 874,000. Jawan is in fourth place with 480,000. And Barbie, again, retaining the top five slot, 456,000 added onto its total. It's got up to 94 million in the uk alone it has been a phenomenal success haunting in venice worldwide is just under 40 million after the weekend for a film that had a 60 million budget that's not a bad opening and it's looking very likely that it will end up going into profit which hopefully will allow us to see more Branner adapted poirot stories in future i'm pleased to see that branagh
0: is still making these movies because they've not had they've not had a huge return but what they have had is, is generally good word of mouth. And I'm assuming yeah. then that he makes these films fairly, fairly uh, profitably and, and not over budget for it to keep going. If we, we, you know, we're three films in, he must be doing something right.
1: Yeah, the, the first film only cost 55 million, Orange Express, and made some good money. The second one, Death on the Nile, bigger budget, 100 million. It did okay but it kind of suffered because it was that post lockdown it got delayed so many times because the lockdowns and it was one of those films that kind of suffered through the marketing promotion through the multiple shuffles of release dates that it didn't quite find its audience but this one has dropped its budget to 60 million kept it tight kept it focused and i think it's great i'd love to see more of these and i know that the christie estate are quite pleased with what branna's doing with them and are happy for him to if he just says i want to make this one i want to make that one they're happy for him to get the rights to as much of the stories as they can i think it's interesting and i'll talk about this in the review later that haunting in venice is one of the ones that is lesser known because it's a short story that was hasn't been adapted to film yet right and i think this should be the future of it because we've all seen the big agatha christie's done so many times going in to see something that is a, a kind of unknown it makes it a bit more thrilling and it's been getting really positive reviews on the back of how different it is um, the critics have been better on this one than what they've been on the previous two because they're all getting caught into the, the drama and the mystery and the tension and the surprise. So I think that has generated a really good buzz, which has caused a decent box office turnout this weekend.
0: So we're kind of heading into the autumn season in the States. We've got the up-and-coming Thanksgiving weekend. We've talked about how interesting, albeit disappointing for a lot of films, interesting to see what's going to happen in... In, uh as we move on i mean we've got uh charles band together we've got the hunger games prequel uh yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see where we're gonna go what's going to be the, the the big success if anything uh makes it out i mean what's gonna hit several years ago frozen came out during thanksgiving and was was one of the biggest animated films ever
1: we'll talk about this in work today the you know what's what's going to be big coming up and whilst you got the marvels is it going to do the same level of business as Captain Marvel did or not? We don't know. There's nothing that's a certainty at the moment. But then again, we'd like being surprised like a lot of people were with Barbie. Some people weren't, obviously. I'm going to sit on that, sit on the throne of that (laughs) smug prediction for the rest of my life. Yeah. Is the Hunger Games prequel going to do good business? Well, the book, when it was released only a couple of years ago, showed that there's still an audience out there for more Hunger Games. So maybe that will translate to film. And to be honest, even though I'm not a big fan of the films, I watched the trailer for this one. I kind of think it looks interesting.
0: It's just that one of the reasons that The Hunger Games did well was Jennifer Lawrence was on such a roll at Mm. that particular time. Our audience is going to come into it and wonder where where, where Jennifer Lawrence is in it. So again, it's it's the it's the next big tick off as far as box office goes as to what's going to do well. We can't start the news without talking, of course, about the strikes.
1: We always start the news with a look at the current situation with the strikes and there's no progress really being made. However, the WGAMA and AMPTP have set up talks to resume this coming week. So hopefully next week we might have some news. We did say last week that the AMPTP is starting to have infighting between its own parties. So we are starting to hopefully see some outcome from this. However, the big news related to the strike this week has been about Drew Barrymore, and her chat show that she what she was planning to start up. She made the decision to resume production on her talk show amidst the strikes, which resulted in her then having to release a tear fueled apology video saying that she supports those striking and apologising for any upset she caused by her decision to ignore the picket lines because a lot of her writing team are WGA and she was going to do stuff without them, but then said that she was still planning to re- resume production anyway because uh, other people need to have work. It, it was basically crocodile tears it came across as and it was it's only one of a handful of talk shows that have opted to resume production we know that um, bill mayer has also reju- resumed his now he doesn't tend to use writers anyway and he never had any wga connection with his show so he's not breaching any terms and conditions of the picket lines he's not upsetting any of his own staff but the more t- of these chat shows that say well we don't really need scripted writers that start production it kind of undermines the strike action itself whether or not there was wga involved because it shows that you can make content without the writers and that makes the big studios who are still refusing to accept that they need to pay people fairly it makes them kind of go well who needs to now it is worth adding to this that only today just before we recorded drew Barrymore posted again on her instagram account and to quote her I have listened to everyone and I am making the decision to pause the show's premiere until the strike is over. I have no words to express my deepest apologies to anyone I have hurt. And of course, to our incredible team who works on the show and has made it what it is today. We really try to find our way forward. And I truly hope for a resolution for the entire industry very soon. So well done, Drew. You spent a whole week saying the wrong thing to finally (laughs) realize what you're supposed to say. And that is you support your staff. Your own staff who were striking. You should not have thought about going back into production, even for a second. So, well done. You've made the right decision. You've sent the message out to the studios, to the networks, that you are not going to break the strikes. The strikes can only be broken in one fair way, and that's by, hopefully, them sitting down with the writers this week and working out those deals.
0: Interestingly enough, I read this week about Beetlejuice 2, which was so close to being finished just before the Hollywood strikes. <laughs> Tim Burton yeah. had less than two days of filming left to complete Beetlejuice 2 prior to dual actors and writer strikes taking effect. So um we are going to see less and less news as the strikes continue. But we do have some news for you.
1: Um, well, on the back of the strike action, and this was hinted at a few weeks ago, Marvel Studios visual effects workers have voted in favor of unionizing with the International Alliance of Theatre stage Employees. We said that effects like studios were going to be starting to look towards getting into unions, and there might be strike action along the way to negotiate fair working conditions, which is the big pressure thing that we've been hearing over the past year and a half with regards, particularly Marvel Studios and all of Disney Productions. There's been loads of reports of how being put on under unfair working conditions for unfair hours and not getting the financial rewards. So don't be surprised if we come out the other side of the writers and the actors strikes only to go into an effects studio strike and not have any blockbuster films for the next few years. Now, this marks the first time a unit of solely video effects workers has unionized with the AATSE. Mark Patch, VFX organizer for the IATSE, said in a statement. Today, the effects workers at Marvel Studios spoke with a unanimous collective voice demanding fair pay for the hours they work, healthcare, safe and sustainable working environment and respect for the work they do. There could be no stronger statement highlighting the overwhelming need for us to continue our work and bring union protections and standards to all workers across the industry. And there could be no stronger example of the courage and solidarity of these workers than each and every one of them declaring a union yes. So we're not out of the woods yet, but we do have some news. Go, let's do it. Let's do the news. So uh, we mentioned last week that Lionsgate had acquired the rights to The Crow and it was going to get a release next year. It was adapted back in 1994 with Brandon Lee, but this time we'll have Bill Skarsgård in the lead role. The production went through loads of different directors, writers and stars over the years, but ultimately it was shot and completed on a 50 million budget. And the film's producer, Sam Pressman, the son of producer Edward R. Pressman, has commented this week that he believes that the reboot is strong enough that it warrants an expansion into a potential shared universe in other mediums like games and animation. Telling Deadline, The Crow has been a very central and integral part of our company, and I'm really proud of the progress and the work that's been done. I think the movie is just going to blow people away. Our partners want to approach it in a very 360 way, whether it be video games, animated series, a shared universe. It's got this cosmic legacy that can be expanded beyond a single story. We're finally at a point where we can really explore these other avenues because it's such a unique property in that it's not a studio film it's not a marvel film it's kind of anti-marvel i have the highest hopes for that and i really love what molly hassel has done in pushing it up the hill and rupert sanders is such a visionary we'll know when it comes out what it whether it deserves to be spun off into other properties but you know from the comics anyone who's read the comics knows that there's opportunities for other stories other tales other crows to be explored.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, it didn't start out as an anthology, but it did take into into account other characters who were reawakened by the crow. So, uh, mm. um, and we saw that we saw that with the other films to some some extent. I think if Brandon Lee had lived, then he would have been in the sequels. Uh, but I look forward to it. You know, we've been waiting for this for some time. I was a big fan of uh, the first movie, not so much any of the sequels. Uh, always loved the comics. I've been waiting to see a new Crow film uh, and see where we go with it. It wasn't a perfect film. Uh, no. Brandon Lee was an in, uh, incredible screen presence, but it is a great film. So it, it's something that can be remade or rebooted and have have new additions to it and and move forward in effects and storylines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I, I am looking forward to it.
1: It has been interesting this week looking at whenever there's been posts about the reboot of the Crow. You're seeing the people who are saying, oh, they should leave the classic films alone. They should never reboot anything. They shouldn't reboot. Just get some originality. And counting the number of people who have a a various interpretation of Batman through the years as their profile picture. And I can't help but feel there's a (laughs) sense of irony there.
0: This was interesting news because I I didn't realise it was going to go ahead as a series. But Donald Glover's uh, Lando Star Wars series is now being made into a movie. So they're forgetting the idea of running through as a star wars disney plus series it's going to be a film
1: yes donald glover and his brother stephen are on full writing duties for it it had recently been hinted that it might have been a series but now we know it's going to get the big screen outing. i'm there i'm there for it donald and stephen are great writers absolutely great writers
0: if you've seen atlanta then you know what we mean
1: as much as i didn't really rate solo I had nothing but respect and love for how Lando was presented in that film. I'm there for it. That's the kind of Star Wars that I'm well and truly up for. We like anthologies, don't we? We do. We like horror, don't we? We do. We love John Carpenter, don't we? We certainly do. So have I got good news for you. Oh, well, I'm ready. John Carpenter revealed earlier this year that he'd returned to directing for a TV series. And it's now been revealed that it's called John Carpenter's Suburban Screams being developed for Peacock. It's set to premiere next month, and it's dubbed a genre-busting, unscripted horror anthology series that explores the dark secrets and unspeakable evil that sometimes lurks beneath the surface of the sun-drenched streets, manicured lawns, and friendly neighbours of suburbia. Each episode is going to focus on one tale of horror told by the real people who lived through it. Their first-hand accounts are brought to life through reenactments, news clips, home photos, and archive footage. And the show aims to combine the visual language of horror films with documentary filming techniques for a uniquely frightening experience for viewers. Carpenters producing alongside Sandy King, Tony DeSanto, showrunner Jordan Roberts, Patrick Smith and Andy Portnoy. And I am there for it.
0: I've heard rumours of this, but it's good to know that it's now actually happening.
1: Yep. And in addition, this week, Carpenter spoke about the plans for a re-adaptation of Christine, uh, the Stephen King tale that he brought to the screen 40 years ago in 1983. I know, I was there. Blumhouse have got the rights with Brian Fuller set to pen and direct. And Carpenter, when he was asked what he thinks about it, simply said, oh boy, well, good luck to him. It'll probably be better. Because he's never had any love for that film himself because it was just a jobbing gig. He didn't care for it. As much as it's become beholden and beloved by us as fans, he was just doing a job. He was contracted to do something, did it, and wasn't happy with the end result. So he's not going to gonna feel that he needs to interfere with it. Not as he's got his own beloved franchises that he created himself, but this was just a job for him. I'm there for Brian Fuller making a, a remake of Christine. Whether it actually goes through, because we know how many projects Brian Fuller takes up and then cancels and moves on because it doesn't quite go his way. There's been so many over the years. I've kind of given up getting excited until something's in film.
0: I'm going to stay with horror and we don't get much more iconic. And, and you and I probably share these films as being the the first horror movies that we saw, but Hammer films. So they define the horror genre in the UK throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Classic uh, interpretations of The Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, Oliver Reed as the Wolfman. Uh, One of my favourite Hammer films, Taste the Blood of Dracula. Oh, I love Hammer films so much. Yes, they are incredibly dated and are of a time period but they reinvented horror for a new audience. They have been trying to come back. Uh, They had a huge success with The Woman in Black, did pretty good with the remake, the US remake, of Let the Right One In, Mm -hmm. and then kind of stumbled again. Anyway, they're moving in a new era with the release of Dr. Jekyll, a modern take on the classic double identity story starring comedy and screen legend, Eddie Izzard. So Izzard is playing Nina Jekyll, an infamous doctor who takes on the same hired help in the form of an uh, an ex-convict, Rob. Little does Rob know he's part of a sinister master plan concocted by Nina's alter ego, Rachel Hyde. Chaos and weirdness and some horror elements ensue.
1: This is the, the newly restored Hammer Studios. Hammer Studios Limited has now been acquired by the John Gore organization. And um, hopefully this will be the start of a new era that succeeds. Hammer has been a part of our lives throughout the decades in one way, shape or form. Be it as a kid watching a Hammer House of Horror on TV and being scared by pipes dripping blood over a birthday party. Or, as Lee said, through the classic use of the classic monsters in a lot of its more well-known stories. Like you say, in recent years, we've had some good revisits by them, but nothing's really quite landed fully i want to see i want to see more hammer
0: yeah i mean i think there there are some hammer films and, and i do believe there is a, a rights issue but some of them are deserved of of remakes but um we'll have to wait and see as i say, I, I do believe there's a rights issue you'll get to pass judgment on the new hammer film on october the 27th when the film gets its uk release where's anderson yeah saw the trailer i know where you're going
1: we've already had the trailer for the wonderful story of henry sugar 39 minute short film that he's made for netflix but we now also have the details of the other short films that are going to form part of this series now this was originally just going to be put together as one movie as like an anthology movie but instead netflix are releasing them each separately but you don't have to worry about you have to tune in each week it's over the course of four days so on wednesday the september 27th we get the wonderful story of henry sugar which sees a rich man learn about a guru who can see without using his eyes and then sets out to master the skill in order to cheat at gambling the swan will follow on thursday september the 28th a 17 minute short about a small brilliant boy ruthlessly pursued by two large idiotic bullies the rat catcher i remember reading the rat catcher rat Catcher is one of my favorite sh- like shorts from um, roald dahl can't wait Not to see this 17 minute beauty um, it's it's a professional rodent exterminator story. It, if it adapts well, and come on, it's Wes Anderson. Of course, it's going to adapt well. That might end up being one of my faves. And then Poison on Saturday, September the 30th. 17 minutes again. Story about a man who discovers a poisonous snake is sleeping in his bed. Roald Dahl's imagination combined with Wes Anderson's visual style. Whindsay. This is a match made in heaven.
0: So reportedly, Amazon and Netflix were engaged in a heated bidding war for the film Crime 101, which is an adaptation of a Don Winslow novella. If you've heard the name Don Winslow before, the film Savages that Oliver Stone previously adapted way back in 2012, know very little about it other than the film stars Chris Hemsworth and Pedro Pascal. It seems as though Amazon has won out on this particular occasion.
1: They've kind of got all the money to throw at it.
0: Yeah, accordingly, Amazon secured the rights to the film in a ninety million dollar deal. Uh, but with the uh, dual strikes at the moment, there's no sign with no signs of slowing down. Don't <laughs> expect cameras to begin rolling on this project anytime soon.
1: Catch up entertainment. Who gave us hypnotic? has reportedly won the worldwide rights to Millennium Media's live-action Hellboy, The Crooked Man. Remember that? Remember when that got mentioned, that he'd being made?
0: Yeah, because it, it kind of came <laughs> out of nowhere. It was it was practically finished. Interestingly enough, though, I've not seen any stills or anything from this film yet.
1: You know what happens when you say that, is that it gets like la- it Yeah, I wonder, wonder when that happened last, before. Andy. I wonder. <laughs> Uh, yeah last week last week on the show andy had to do a quick edit because we spoke about how there was no promotional materials for aquaman and then literally an hour after we finished recording promotional materials (laughs) for aquaman landed (laughs) so I, i i think i nicely plugged that gap but anyway uh back to hellboy the crooked man this is a new adaptation starring jack kessie who you might know from intruders and blood brother and claws And it's a new new adaptation from the character from the Dark House comics. Um, In the film, Hellboy and a rookie BPRD agent are stranded in 1950s rural Appalachia. There they discover a small community haunted by witches and led by a local devil with a troubling connection to Hellboy's past, the Crooked Man. The reason why I didn't get overly excited at this news when it was uh, first released was because the director is Brian Taylor, who gave us Crank and Crank 2. And, and the ghost, worst rider. ghost rider movie of all time <laughs> <laughs> and that's saying something because neither of the ghost rider movies have been good he's directing the film i'm willing to give it a shot because i'm willing to see whether he's refined because what i didn't like about his directorial style with uh never neville dean was it is His yeah. uh, partner in directing was it was very erratic and frenzied i'm hoping he's Kind of grown up a bit and it slows down but we won't know until we see a trailer Jefferson white adeline rudolph joseph marcel leah mcnamara hannah Margotson and martin bassendale co-star no word on a potential release date yet but now it's got distribution rights it's only a matter of time before we start to see something
0: so just a couple of quick snippets ang lee has been talking about his bruce lee biopic which is to star his son and has revealed that bruce lee's final film enter the Dragon will be the centerpiece of the film. According to Lee, when they realized that the time period of Bruce's life around the making of that film was a moment where there were so many different thematic threads that were connecting, and there was a confluence of an incredible amount of drama and conflict in his life. We know, as I said, that Ang Lee will cast his son, Mason Lee, in the lead role.
1: Loki's second season executive producer, Kevin Wright, has confirmed that Ki-Hoo Kwan's character will be introduced as the Time Variance Authority's quirky repair guy, explaining that the character's job is basically every piece of tech, every computer, everything that is running at the TVA. He either designed it or he fixes it and keeps running. Second season is on our doorsteps, returning next month, and I can't be more excited.
0: An interesting take on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's been mentioned that there's going to be reboots galore. Anyway, a sequel of sorts is coming to Audible with a lot of the original cast members to return. Uh, that will continue the form of an original recording. We'll be heading back to the Hellmouth soon with Slayer's A Buffyverse Story, a brand new audio series featuring the iconic character of Spike as the hero.
1: Written by Amber Benson, who starred as Tara Maclay in the series. For those of you out there who love that show as much as we do. Fantastic. Great. She's a great writer. I've read some of her other stuff that she's done over the years and I'm really excited to get more Buffy, even if it is just in my ears. Tony Todd is going to return for Final Destination 6. The news was broke this week. Um, It'll be his fourth appearance in the series, which follows the original film, its 2003 sequel, and the 2011 fifth movie. The character, named Bloodworth, was introduced as the owner of the funeral homes and explained the rules of death to Alex in the first film. This new film is said to follow a group of first responders, which kind of makes the appearance of a coroner very fitting. James Cameron is attending a special screening of the special edition of The Abyss for the Beyond Fest event at the end of this month, which has fueled new speculation that the long-promised 4K restoration might be getting announced, because why would he turn up at a screening of it unless he's got some big news about the film to reveal to us? He's been promising this for years, and we were told earlier this year that True Lies and The Abyss are on the way. This could be it. I could get very excited and I could explode with joy at the end of this month. So get ready for that explosion.
0: Mia is The Boy and the Heron, has found a UK distribution company, even though at this stage, no date has been set. The film is about to get its premiere at the BFI London Film Festival mm. next month.
1: Netflix has closed an 11 million deal at the Toronto Film Festival to acquire Anna Kendrick's de- directorial debut, the fact-based thriller, Woman of the Hour, which follows a young woman who's played by Kendrick, who won a date on the dating game game show with a handsome and charming man who turned out to be a notorious serial killer who was convicted of killing at least eight women. And despite the recent rumour that cropped up, suggesting it was going to clock in at three hours, an actual listing of the film's runtime for Five Nights at Freddy's indicates that it's only going to be 110 minutes. Slightly different than three hours, and three (laughs) hours would have been ridiculous. Let's be honest, no one's going to sit through a Five Nights at Freddy's film for that length of time. Um, The film is going day and date in theatres and on streaming on Peacock.
0: There have been some notable trailer drops. Killers of the Flowers Moon, a new trailer, dropped this week and uh, it looks absolutely amazing.
1: It looks like what you'd expect from Scorsese. It just looks like quality. I know that it's easy to sneer at Scorsese because of how he's been portrayed as this person who's old man yelling at the clouds a lot. But, boy. he's a master filmmaker. I will let him have whatever opinions he wants to have about superhero movies as long as he churns out films that are of this quality. It is top of my list and it's going to be about three, three hours of runtime and it's going to be three hours that I'm going to be happy to be sat in a screen and watch.
0: Uh, another one for me was the creator's final trailer which looked beautiful as one would expect yeah. uh, and just looks like all, sort of, all sorts of great sci-fi goodness.
1: And it hits that sweet spot just right for sci-fi fans um one which come on i'm gonna end up watching it but it's not looking good and that's the prequel pet cemetery bloodlines
0: oh yeah saw that one <laughs>
1: yes um the trailer is not great uh, no. it serves as a prequel to the 2019 film adaptation and Stephen King has said that the screenplay takes a few liberties but it's a fine story David Duchovny is excellent the secret as always is caring about the characters oh there may be trouble ahead
0: yeah that's headed to uh paramount plus in october
1: over on amazon in october now what did catch my attention don't know that you saw this one totally killer with nope. and shipka time traveling murder basically back to the future with a murder plot karen shipka in the present day knows that her mother hates celebrating halloween because on halloween in the end of the 80s all of her friends got killed at a camp that they went to overnight for halloween by a serial killer and then Shipka through some strange quirky accident, gets thrown back in time and has a chance to prevent the murders of that night if she can just work out who the killer is. It looks like fun. It looks great. And it looks like it's leaning into that kind of comedy horror kind of approach that recent films such as Freaky and things like that have done so well. The trailer made me smile. And then we get to the trailer that I didn't want it to make me smile as much as it did, but it did. And it's the one that we mentioned that we almost forgot to mention last week until I edited it in um, and said, oh, yeah, it's been released. And had the full trailer of Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. And you know what? It looks just like the first film was to me. Pure comic book fun, which I loved, as you know. I know that you weren't as enamored with it. It It looks like more of the same to me. And I think that's all that I want over the Christmas period. I just want Aquaman to just be a big slice of cheese-filled fun. And it looks fun.
0: I will be there for it. What I'll also be there for is Mike Flanagan's uh, Edgar Allan Poe adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher which is oh, coming yeah. to Netflix very soon.
1: So it's it's been a good week for trailers and that's only it a handful there's been, there's been loads of others dropped but they're the ones that have stood out for us for good or for bad. Get onto YouTube and search for trailers, compilations of things coming out over the next couple of months because there's a feast a feast of treats on their way.
0: And that folks, that's the news for this week. If you're having as much of a good time listening to this show as we did recording it, perhaps you want to enjoy even more of The Film File, because if you've not so far subscribed to the show, you can do so right now. Yes, right now, just pause this. Go straight to your favourite podcast platform, hit the subscription button, and remember to leave a like. And if you enjoyed doing that as much as I think you will do, then all you have to do, is get in touch with us. Andy, how can people get in touch with us?
1: You can get in touch with us in a variety of ways. You can catch us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Just do a search for Filmfile UK on whatever social media platform you're on. You might find us. If you don't go to a different social media platform or send us an email. Podcast at uk thoughts, suggestions, recommendations, anything that you want to talk film wise let us know any questions you've got film-wise, any films that you're trying to track down and you can't remember the name of. See, what, see if we can f- help you find it. We're always happy to help and we're always happy to hear from you. So do it. Get in touch.
0: It's now time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. We go back amazingly, and this is what surprised me most about this week, is that this film came out in 2002. It's the American meta-comedy drama, directed by Spike Jonze and written by Charlie Kaufman. Yes, adaptation.
1: I'm starting to sweat, stop sweating. I've got to stop sweating. Oh, she looked at my hair a lot. She thinks I'm bald. We think you're great. Yeah. I just don't want to ruin it by making it a Hollywood thing. I don't want to cram in sex or guns or car
0: chases or characters overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. You know, it's, the, the book isn't like
1: that. Okay, we open with LaRoche. Okay, he says, I love to mutate plants. Okay, we show flowers and, okay, we have to have the court case. Okay, we show LaRoche. Okay, we open at the beginning of time. No, okay, we open with LaRoche driving into the swamp. Crazy white man. No! I
0: feel very strongly about this. I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh? Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl.
1: Smart. Sing with me. I think these flowers are so sexy.
0: People find
1: love. People lose it. I want to care about something passionately.
0: Okay, so if you've not seen the film, stay with me. Nicolas Cage plays the screenwriter, Charlie Kaufman, a screenwriter who struggles to adapt Susan Orlean's book, played by Meryl Streep, about John LaRoche, who clones rare orchids and sells them to collectors. Their lives get intertwined with unpredictable results, including Charlie Kaufman's imaginary real-life twin brother, donald kaufman are you still with us if you've not seen this film (laughs) stick around because that was the easy bit
1: this is a fun film i remember when this first came out and this was a proper head trip of a film and it's a film that i've watched a couple of times since and it's still as much as a head trip even on the fourth or fifth viewing because it's so sharp in the way that it weaves fact and fiction together because the true story behind this is charlie kaufman In real life, the real Charlie Kaufman, who worked with Spike Jones on being John Malkovic, while they were on John Malkovic, he was working on the script for The Orchid Thief.
0: By Susan Orleans, which is a 1998 nonfiction book.
1: Because he'd been given it to adapt. And when he read this nonfiction book that was mostly uh, an analysis of different orchids, rather than actually having a structural narrative to it, he realised you can't adapt this book. But he was getting pressure from above that he needed to produce something. He needed to have something written down. He'd been paid, get something on paper. So he wrote a screenplay that broke the boundaries of the book and became a story about himself and his fictional twin brother struggling to write screenplays.
0: Uh, I just want to point out that's right, fictional twin brother.
1: (laughs) Charlie's book being Charlie's script being the orchid thief and his fictional brother Donald coming up with a genre schlock piece called The Three. Now, initially not expecting this film to ever get made, and we're back to real life again now. <laughs> this is where the goal gets really confusing. Initially not expecting the film to get made on this script, he added his fictional brother as co writer on it and sat it to one side. And Spike Jones cast his eye over it while they were working on being John Malcolm and went, We need to do that one next. And that's the reason why this film ended up getting made. He only put pen to paper to write this screenplay because he was contracted to do something with it and he didn't expect it to ever get made. Hence it's so weird, hence it's so bizarre, and hence it became a film which is more a study of screenwriters being given tasks that they can't do by executives and producers who've clearly just snapped up the rights for whatever's in the top 10 US best-selling book series lists without actually knowing what the source matters are. And so it's a biting satire of the Hollywood system. Now, we'll get back to The Twin Brother later on, because there's a really nice bit of information that we can finish on with The Twin Brother.
0: I'm going to throw in that the real Susan Orlean, portrayed by Meryl Streep, in the film, was strongly opposed to the making of the film. She ended up reluctantly approving its production and was ultimately very impressed with the final result. She said after reading the screenplay, she was in complete shock. Her first reaction was absolutely not. But they had to get her permission. So she just said, no, are you kidding? This is going to ruin my career. But very wisely, they didn't really pressure her. (laughs)
1: <laughs> they they used a subtle bit of pressure because they basically said to her everyone else is fine with how they're represented in it wink wink and walked away <laughs> to make her feel bad that other people were happy with it
0: but no matter what orleans called uh street's portrayal of her as one of my favorite performances <laughs> by Streep. at this particular point uh spike johns had, had entered into films for making music videos of course he was making very eccentric, sometimes avant-garde, expressionist music videos and was was fantastic uh, in, in doing so. And, and this film, as Andy said, came off the back end of uh, the John Malkovich film. And strangely enough, this film ended up doing remarkably
1: well. Yeah, it just captured the public's attention in a way that this kind of film really does. Um, The whole film, like I've said, is a meta satire on Hollywood systems insistence on optioning best-selling books regardless of what they are. But it also tackles things like the pressure from studio heads to then break any narrative in the books to insert love triangles and all the dramatic things that aren't actually in there and go against what the books were about. And writers struggling with the system to deliver something that they're proud of whilst at the same time makes the producers happy that they've delivered what they wanted. Charlie Kaufman, in this, play, beautifully by Nicolas Cage, is going through serious writer's block. But his brother Donald has been going to one of these film creative guru classes uh, that Kaufman, in real life, doesn't like either. Um, so he wrote it into the book that like him criticising these people who are gurus, if they're so good at writing, why aren't they writing? Why are they telling other people how to write?
0: Because Brian Cox plays screenwriting guru Robert McKee, still with us
1: isn't he brilliant isn't brian Cox marvelous in this he is so great his brief scene where he dishes out his rules and restrictions on screenwriting to charlie kaufman and all the rules that he gives out like in the background of the film as donald keeps saying oh he's told us to do this he's told us not to do this he's told us to do this gets broken through the form of the film all through the film this this is a film that is so meta It then takes Meta to a third level. It becomes Meta about the Meta about the Meta. (laughs) As it starts to introduce elements, criticise those elements, and then redo the elements, but in a different way throughout it. And it's brilliant. And Nicolas Cage is a tour de force. As the insecure Charlie who's having a breakdown, He's really like you you can feel for him, you can get drawn into him. But in his interplay with the more exuberant and hyperactive Donald, as he's writing his schlock script, and it is a trashy script that he's coming up with, it makes no sense. But you genuinely start to believe that this is two separate people. Cage, even though they look exactly the same, because they're supposed to be twins, Cage plays them in such different mannerisms that each of them has that you know which one's on screen at any moment and which one's talking at any moment and when he's talking with himself it's the most perfect interaction between the same person that i've ever seen on film
0: nicholas cage was nominated for best actor from this sadly he didn't win but chris cooper a supporting actor did win uh the film was also nominated for best adapted screenplay funny enough uh with the nominees being charlie kaufman
1: and donald kaufman the Non-existent twin brother was nominated for an award <laughs> at the Oscars because the Oscars didn't realize he didn't exist.
0: <laughs> so so to, to really sum this up, this is probably one of the most inventive, clever, funny Genuinely oddities of the funny. films that you you will get a chance to see. This was Kaufman, I think is very, very best. I think Spike Jonze is very, very best. It, it, it's funny, as Andy said, it, it's meta. It's got tragedy in it, it's it's odd, it's strange, and, and it's very, very likeable.
1: Um, it's also hilarious that Donald's script, The Three, which is mocked throughout for the ridiculous concept of it, a cop and a killer finding out that they're the same person, made even more hilarious by the fact that he inserted a car chase between the two, as part of the structural na- narrative. But then there's the further comedy in years after it when if you watch the film identity it's pretty much the same storyline but then even better there's a film out there called three which released about three years later it has a shockingly low rotten tomatoes score so i need to track this film down and get it a full watch but i read the synopsis of it and it's the same script someone took the joke script they shredded to pieces in adaptation and adapted that and i just think that's brilliant that's taken yeah. the fact that the adaptation was a meta 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 film and then they've gone real life meta on adaptation this is just going to go <laughs> on forever uh,
0: and the fact that three is a christian horror film <laughs> it came out in 2007 directed by robbie henson screenplay by alan b mcclory
1: it's just bizarre um, adaptation was an absolute treat when i first watched it even though i didn't quite follow everything that was going on i was just caught up in it because of how ridiculously funny it could be but it's a film that on repeated viewing you start to see how well woven it is and how sharp and satirical it is and how smart and insight into the movie making industry throughout there's even a, a brief cameo by john malkovich because there's a like this the film more or less opens on the set of being john malkovich with them redoing part of that film with Nicolas cage in the background and Everything about this film, when I rewatched it this week, just made me realise why I enjoyed it so much when I first watched it. It's a great treat.
0: If you've not seen it, give yourself the opportunity to watch it. It's it's a rare treat of, of something being absolutely unique and original with some fantastic performances. Uh, Andy, where can we find adaptation if we want to take part in this unique experience?
1: <laughs> it's available uh, to watch for free on Freevi. At the moment, free with ads. Uh there's short little 30-second ad breaks about every 15 minutes. It's non-intrusive and it worked a treat. Get it Excellent. watched.
0: We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So, as Andy said, we've got some spooky happenings as far as uh reviews go this week. Andy, do you want to start off with the latest uh from Kenneth Branagh and Poirot?
1: That'll be haunting in venice detective you are here to discredit me but i can talk to the dead mom what is happening
0: somebody has been murdered no one should leave this place until i know who didn't admit
1: that you are up against something bigger than you
0: there must be a rational answer
1: for all of this you were saying. A in Venice. This is the third of Kenneth Branagh's adaptations of Poirot. This time, the tale being told is one of the lesser-known tales from Agatha Christie, which has only seen transferred to TV as part of David Suchet's series and on the French TV series of the character. The story, Halloween Party, saw Poirot attend a party where the tale of past murder is told before a fresh murder occurs and the detective sets to task to solve the mysteries on offer. In adapting the tale to film, Branagh and his writer, Michael Green, Shift the location from Woodley Common in the novel to a storm bashed Venice, and he sprinkles in some supernatural mystery alongside the real murder on display. Poirot, having lost faith in both God and humanity, has retired, and he spends his time now in Venice, accompanied by ex police officer Vitale, who serves as his bodyguard. When an old acquaintance novelist, Ariadne Oliver, played by Tina Fey, arrives and invites him to join at a Halloween party, where a seance is being hosted by medium Joyce Reynolds played by Michelle Yeoh. Poirot is intrigued enough with the possibility of exposing the medium as a fraud to go along. However, as events of the evening play out, a shocking murder takes place, and Poirot begins to see apparitions of ghosts said to haunt the building, beginning to question his own lack of faith in the supernatural as he's determined to solve the multiple riddles presented around him. If orient express could be seen as luxurious in design tapping into the spirit of the famous train and nile was seen as lavish and grand reflecting the opulent wealth on display and the exotic environs around it this film is once more completely different in approach layering an almost horror design throughout with dutch angles utilized off-center framing of characters moody lighting claustrophobic settings all playing into the aesthetic making each of the films feel so different works well And the alteration to the setting for this tale lends to it perfectly. The Venice setting makes it somewhat more mysterious. The stormy weather adds threats of floods throughout, whilst the claustrophobic design of the house with its gated entrances makes it feel like everyone is penned in within whilst death is stalking them all. As expected, much like the previous films, the wealth of cast on offer all benefit the story well, and Branagh utilises each of them effectively. But what really benefits this film, however, is the fact that it not well known. The story isn't well known. Whilst I enjoyed Orient Express and, despite its flaws, appreciated Death on the Nile, both of those films suffered from overfamiliarity. Here, I had no idea as to what or who was behind it, and so I found myself desperately seeking clues at the same time that Poirot was. I was listening for any hints in dialogue, I was watching for hidden details in the background that might hint at the resolution, and it made for a stronger and much more engaging experience. By the end of the film, I was satisfied with the revealed outcome. After all, I kind of worked it out just before Poirot had worked it out on screen, and it left me longing for future films to be adapted in this series with Kenneth Branagh in the role. Poirot is one of the finest creations in literature, and has always made for interesting variations on screen. And Branagh has demonstrated that this classic sleuth can still be enticing today, even when you stick to the period setting of the source materials.
0: I, I've loved what Bran has been doing with Perot. I think he's uh, he's brought something very different to it. Uh, yeah. And yet he's not lost sight of who the character is. I, I liked him in the second film, because Death on the Nile isn't a particularly great Christie novel. But mm. I, I like the origin story about the mustache, funny enough, <laughs> that, that he interwove into, the, into that, which and how important it was. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. I will get a chance to see it. A film that you and I have been gagging to see, and it got pulled off the release schedule we mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, is The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Now, uh, for those who don't know, this is the sequence in Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is the journey from Transylvania to Whitby. Is it worth hanging on to when it lands in the UK?
1: This is a warning.
0: Evil is on board. We're a doomed crew. I'm a doomed ship. This looks like a bite. The devil is real. We call him
1: Dracula. He's coming! Drawn from the captain's log chapter of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Last Voyage of the Demeter fills the gaps in that section of the tale to show us how the crew of the vessel transporting Dracula to the English shores were picked off one by one over the journey. Basically playing out like an isolated monster movie, think Alien or The Thing, it sees an isolated crew become concerned at strange activities and mysterious deaths before they come to realise that a terror is stalking them. This two-hour film was one that I had quite decent hopes for, and suffice to say, the end result was pretty much what I was expecting. Our entry point to the film sees us follow Clemens, played by Corey Hawkins, a doctor who's seeking passage to England, who joins the crew of the Demeter after one of the crew leave when they spy a dragon symbol on a crate being loaded up. Through Clemens' interactions, we get to know all we need to know about each of the crew. From Captain Elliot, played brilliantly by Liam Cunningham, who plans to make this journey his last before he'll hand the running of the ship over to his first mate, the ever-excellent David Dasmalchian, in a role that's much more serious than we're used to him being in. To each of the crew, who have very mixed reactions to Clemens joining them. And to the captain's grandson, Toby, played by Woody Norman, who, as with his part in Cobweb that I reviewed last week, delivers another strong child actor performance that benefits the film. Stowaway Anna, played by Aislinn Franciosi, is key to understanding the evil that's on board. Dracula is given physical form in a grotesque, spindly, bat-like form, not via CGI, but via Javier Botet, whose elongated physique through his living with Marfan Syndrome has seen him become a known presence in horror films through roles as creatures in films such as Mama, Wreck, Slenderman, scary stories to tell in the dark, and much, much more. By casting the role, as opposed to using puppetry and CGI, it gives a menacing reality to the stalking beast, aiding the chills throughout. Director André Overadol, Keeps the pace flowing well, knowing how to get us under the skin of the crew who are out at sea, whilst ramping up the tension and delivering the right amount of scares to keep us on edge. The early shadowy glimpses of Dracula effectively utilize the nighttime setting for the stalking, ensuring your eyes are darting back and forth every time the scene changes to a moonlit evening. As we see more and more of the beast, the design work of the prosthetics comes into play, and coupled with Botet's presence, works in perfect unison. Overall, The film is pretty typical of the genre approach it's taken, and given that the outcome is known, indeed the film opens with the outcome, there are scant few surprises in store. However, there are some nice turns scattered throughout, and even some convention-breaking moments that make you sit up and pay attention. It's got a visual style that's fitting to the tale, some solid performances on offer, Demeter delivers just what I wanted, and even makes me long for further chapters of Dracula to be adapted within this same setting.
0: I think we'll we'll come back and review this, Andy, when it's released and just give a, a bit of an update when it lands in the UK. Yeah. And finally, something that I know kept you up all night, checking behind the windows, hiding behind a cushion, and that's the new one from A24.
1: And that's Talk To Me. Hands up. Cannot go for more than 90 seconds. What happens after 90 seconds?
0: Don't want to stay. Now say, talk to me.
1: Talk to me. 83 seconds, get it off him! What if we opened the door but we didn't shut it? Don't want to stay. On paper, the synopsis for this film sounds overly familiar, tapping into a possibly overdone staple setup for horror. A group of friends discovers a way to summon the spirits of the dead and communicate using an embalmed hand as part of the seance ritual however one of their communications goes on too long and it appears that terrifying supernatural forces threaten the whole group it's a basic plot that we've seen churned out many times previously and it does seem on the surface that there isn't anything particularly new that could be brought to the table however given that a24 snapped this up for distribution that made me interested after all each of their horror releases does look tropish on paper, but always end up delivering far more than you would expect. Directed by first-time duo Danny and Michael Filippo, known collectively as Raka Raka, who rose to prominence via their YouTube channel that won various awards for its horror comedy content, Talk To Me is a great example of sticking to formula for your first directing gig, but with a sharp knowledge of the genre you're playing with, which allows the pair to be somewhat creative and surprising around it. Made with a budget of only 4.5 million, the creativity on show here with the practical effects makes every use of that limited budget to deliver a polished and chilling film that sits uncomfortably with you as the end credits roll. Whilst in general the plot does stick to formula, it does have some smart twists and turns to keep you just a bit off kilter, never quite sure as to what's going on. Yes, we know spirits are involved as we're showing the dead early in the film but we can never be too sure as to the intent of the dead souls. Therefore, despite having seen many variations on this theme over the years, the final act still came as a bit of a shock and a bit of a surprise. Within the plot, there's also examinations of grief, loss and longing to fit in with the crowd, all playing out well thanks to a solid pace that just about allows your time to breathe before shocking or chilling once more, and it ensures throughout that you're comfortably off balance and unnerved. This is all aided by a really good cast of relative unknowns, who give very real, grounded and sometimes intense performances throughout. Sophia Wilde as Mia is stunningly powerful as the central focus, and her jarring switches to other personalities when the dead speak through her are terrifyingly chilling. In addition, Joe Bird as Riley delivers a heartfelt outsider kind of performance, but also one of the most shockingly distressing moments in the film, with utter perfection. The film does play out primarily psychological, that's my kind of horror, but it manages to deliver some absolutely shocking and upsetting brutality at times. One such moment had me having to look away from the screen as it was so intense and upsetting. But whilst films such as the Saw franchise use that brutality almost as titillation, here it feels horribly necessary to be so shocking, bleeding into the chilling nature and serving to keep you constantly on edge. This is one of the strongest horrors I've seen this year. And with enough tease that we could see an interesting franchise premise spun from it. This is a film that I recommend to even the most jaded of horror fans.
0: So that's the reviews for this week. Andy, what's coming up? What are the big releases over the next week?
1: So at cinemas, for families, there's the animated uh, spooky Canterville Ghost. For those people who want to see the GameStop film that has been in production for the past year, Dumb Money gets released this week. Expendables 4. If you want to spend your own dumb money, that gets released this week. (laughs) And Stop Making Sense also releases, which kind of ties into Expendables 4 because that stopped making sense way back in the first film. (laughs) Now TV and Sky, God is a Bullet gets released. Nicholas costa Waldo plays Detective Bob Hightower, who takes action when his ex-wife is murdered and his daughter kidnapped by an insidious cult.
0: Who hasn't been kidnapped by an insidious cult at one point in their life?
1: But my pick of the week on Now TV and Sky, and in fact, this is my pick of the week overall. Marcel Lachelle with shoes on lands on Now TV and Sky this week. I am
0: going to watch it. I have held on to Sky because I saw that was mm-hmm. on their schedule, so I am going to get that scene as our family film this week.
1: Uh, Spy Kids Armageddon lands on Netflix this week. Yeah. <laughs> so I was a yeah. that response, on Disney Plus, No One Will Save You, the C- Caitlin Dever film which sees a play Bryn finding solace within the walls of the home where she grew up until she's awakened by unearthly intruders. And over on Amazon, we've been waiting for these three episodes to land. The Continental begins this week.
0: Yes! Won't be leaving the house that night. So,
1: not a bad week for, like... No, no, there's some...
0: There are the the, uh, UFO home invasion movie I am so there for. I've been looking forward to that one. So, folks, that's it for this week. Thank you, as ever, For joining us but before we go we do this every week it's our neat things andy what's your neat thing
1: now andy's a bit tired today noticed i think you had a late night andy had a very late night and he didn't intend to have a late night but for the past couple of nights andy's had late nights because andy does remember last week i was talking about starfield has been taken uh, a lot of my time and i'm gonna it's gonna sink a lot of my life into it well i don't buy games when they're brand new but I made an exception this week, and I bought Baldur's Gate 3 on the PlayStation 5.
0: I've heard such good things about it. I don't think it's my kind of game. I'll, I'll put that out there from the get-go, but I have heard very good things about it.
1: Need to make this clear. I am a fan of Baldur's Gate since the very first game series on the PC. I have loved all the Forgotten Realms stuff that they did, the Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale. I love that RPG point-and-click kind of adventure alongside like combat stuff in turn-based action set in a D&D realm, using the D&D like, like rules set as the scripting language. And what I've loved about the Baldur's Gate games in the past is it always felt like you had control, but some freedom. You know, you had your main quest to go through, but you always felt that you could go and do whatever you wanted at some point before you had to draw yourself back. And whenever you got to interact with other characters, little choices of dialogue exchanges would come up, and you got a feeling that your answers had some impact on what would happen. Baldur's gate 3 has taken that to the next level and right from the character creation section which is fully encompassing of pretty much every aspect of D character creation so i have created exactly the character that i wanted to create based on D rules and i'm more than happy with how it's playing out but i already know that i have killed off at least three people that i shouldn't have killed off <laughs> because the game has the game lets you make decisions that maybe you shouldn't have made. You can play this game pretty much however you want. The choices that you make, you can either be a force for good, force for evil, or just a neutral force based on your responses to quests that you're given. You might get given a quest to go and slay a load of goblins, but you might get talking to those goblins and find out that they're really nice and really friendly and work out a peaceful resolution between the conflicts, which I've managed to do, and I felt proud of myself for that, until I then killed a druid who I don't think I was supposed to kill. But the game let me do it and I'm continuing with it. It's a game that's so much fun because it feels like you've got so much freedom and you build up these interactions with your own combat party that you recruit over time, that you you can bond with people or you can end up with a team of people that you don't like. But it feels like you are inhabiting the world and you get so immersed in your characters as a result. I know that once I complete this game, I will start again with a whole different character class, knowing that my second time around is gonna be a completely different experience. And then I'll start again with a different character and class, because each time your character's class, race, whatever, affects elements of the story as well. So each time that you play is going to be a different experience. As a result, every night so far since I've got this, I've thought to myself, I'll jump on for an hour before I go to bed. And last night, It was just gone 10 o'clock, and I thought, I need to get up early tomorrow. I've got time for half an hour. And then it was half past two in the morning. (laughs) When I looked at at the time, and went, oh, I need to go to sleep. Um, And I can see me doing the same same tonight. It's so easy to lose yourself into. So Starfield was my neat thing last week and was going to be an absolute life sink. Starfield is now on the sidelines because Baldur's Gate is dominating. It's a beautiful game. It looks great. It plays great. Marvellous.
0: Quick question for you. Uh, I know it's D&D related. Uh, is is it too old for the kiddo?
1: <laughs> Depends how you feel about games that give option for full nudity and have uh, oh, okay. occasional sexual acts. <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll, I'll take that under advisement.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's very mature in its tone and content, even though it's, it's D&D. So there is a lot of fantasy aspects, but it's the mature end of D&D.
0: OK right so my neat thing uh played a gig over the weekend with billion dollar alice and i wasn't aware of this particular venue and i'm going to recommend a fantastic venue it's over in hull which uh for those in australia it's in the northern east side of the uk and it is just a fantastic venue but it just doesn't stop with being a music venue Uh, the venue's called the wrecking ball music and books It's an independent shop that sells new and used vinyls, t-shirts, there's a coffee shop and a little bar in there. It is an absolutely fantastic, fantastic setup run by two of the nicest people that I've ever had the chance to meet uh, who put gigs on as well. And uh, they just totally love the arts and live music. The stage size isn't very, very big, but they managed to pack it with some fantastic names so they had the stranglers there quite recently they've got um 80s pop band hue and cry songwriter hugh ballard a soft machine they do remarkably well for such a small venue and what a lovely venue it is we had a great time playing there but we were just intrigued by by the shop side as well Uh, if you find yourself wanting to go and see a band if you find yourself heading up to Hull for whatever reason, I cannot recommend highly enough the Wrecking Ball Music and Books. As I say, it is just that. It's, a, it's a, an independent run. It's got a, a huge extensive range of vinyl, huge extensive range of books. Uh, it's got a cafe. It, it is just fantastic. So that's the Wrecking Ball Music and Books in Hull. And that, folks, that's us done for this week. Andy, a pleasure as ever. Hopefully yep. I'll get a chance to see you in the week again. I enjoyed doing our QA. I want to do so many more of those. I really, really enjoyed it. It's great
1: when when we get these QA opportunities. Uh we love we love the opportunity to just chat with um, anyone about why they've made films. So, you know, if you've got a project out there and you've listened to the show at the moment, you've gone, these guys seem cool, and you've got a project that you want to talk to us about, get in touch. We'll have you on the show. and We'll do q and A Q&A over the show. We've done it before with uh, Adam from Apple Park Films, who was a yeah. lovely, lovely Q and A. Check back through our archives as I'll have a listen to it. It was uh, it was great to talk to him when he was with, when he was getting his film into production. Just just drop us a line. We want Indeed. we want something to do.
0: <laughs> we do. Uh, we'd like to be there. Help promote the film file, and you can help promote the film file as well. Tell all your friends. Tell all your fellow film geeks. Uh, to join us as part of the Film File family, because life is short and I need to make the most of it. Today is the first day of the rest of my life, and I'm a walking cliche.
1: It is a great time travel film. Yeah, not not as great as Donnie Darko, obviously, but uh, no. it's
0: <laughs> it's all right. It's great.
1: We're approaching the Halloween season, and every week there's a horror film coming out over the next month. So, you know. Uh, there's going to be some good, there's going to be some bad, there's going to be some utter shite. <laughs> Hello Netflix, I'm looking at you with your horror output each year. <laughs> I, know, I know. This is the show, it's the show that you know. We're <laughs> going to be musical today. You're running Andy's on, on hyper energy, aren't you? Yeah, I've just got a big <laughs> coffee as well, which probably isn't going to help matters. Right. I have been tempted to type some reviews like get, by getting an AI to like do me a positive review for this film. And just see what it says and read it out on the show and see if anyone notices. <laughs> <laughs> now, trust, trust me, I, I, this will be on the end, end sting bit, because um, I do like to keep all this little blather that we do where I can. Uh, but trust me, we, we never use AIs to generate stuff and everything that we give is purely our own opinions.
0: Says the machine that's telling us to do this.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's a Terminator stood behind me, ready to shoot me if I didn't agree with this. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, should we get on with the show?
0: That's this week's challenge. So, Andy, how do our dear listeners get in touch? Let us know about our online. <laughs> how
1: did you get in touch? Is that what you're trying to say? How, <laughs> do, exactly, how did you answer the question? I'll do it all again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that, folks, that's the news for this week.
1: Do 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 do.
0: I'll try and do that with the sound, not as, quite as flat. <laughs> I'll do one more.
1: <laughs> we could have finished off with the death of Bad Bunnies film, but um... <laughs> so that,
0: that's, that, that was a mercy killing.
1: He got <sighs> asked in a Vanity Fair interview what happened with Elmo Muerto? <laughs> and the the out the, the interviewer just said this led to an awkward silence, <laughs>
0: <laughs> which would have been the same from the audience.
1: His publicist then saying, "Next question." <laughs> Do it do it now <laughs> i've not done an impression for a few weeks so I thought, you haven't
0: there's I probably did. a reason for that
1: <laughs> i needed to throw one in yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we go on to the deep dive
0: <laughs> and now it's time stick if around for
1: keeps... the deep dive <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah please don't have any more coffee ever <laughs> doing our Q&A, I want to do so much more Oh, sorry i'll say that again i want to so do many- so many more, <laughs> more of those i really really enjoyed it
1: you tried to say many and much at the same time i did. it didn't quite I did. pay off did it <laughs> <laughs>